this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you so much for listening, for the suggestions, for the feedback. It means a lot. I really do appreciate it. And with me today is uh, another recommendation from a uh, previous guest, Ellen Bush, sitting here with Jennifer Rayford. She is the chief empowerment officer. She's the a coach and an emotional healer with courage to rise. She's got a podcast as well. So we're kind of co-hosting this one. Um, but uh, the reason I wanted to have her on is we're going to kind of deconstruct rah-rah culture and positivity bypassing. And with that, Jennifer, welcome. Good to meet you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for the introduction. It's great to be here. <laughs> so uh, we were talking before we went on uh, record about like the, the cheerleader culture when it comes to coaching. And before we get into that, what is your particular area of focus as a coach and the emotional healer? Because that really resonated last week when we talked. Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's it's interesting because when you go into coaching and if you have a broad skill set, I always say I can, I can work with anyone, but obviously I have a certain set of experience and, um, you know, that, that brings kind of an extra added element to it. So... I have sort of two groups right now that I work with. I work with young women, young professional women, and they're in their late 20s or early 30s that are sort of in a very particular point in their career and their lives. And then I also work with women who, and some men too, who have come through divorce and breakup and who are sort of recovering and rising from that and putting their lives back together again. Is there a difference between working with a man and a woman when it comes to the divorce coaching and the healing? You know, that's a great question. The The truth is the work that I do really comes back to the core of what's true for all of us as humans. And certainly there are nuances, you know, based on, um, you know, different gender identification. But for the most part, a lot of it comes down to fundamentally the same things, you know, and certainly we're wired differently. We're definitely Mars and Venus. Um, so, you know, <laughs> certain elements in that in terms of how that impacts men versus women. Um, men, I, I find, and now I am not a man, obviously. So feel free to correct me, Matt, if you feel I'm off base on this, but <laughs> <laughs> men in general, and I say good, healthy men in general, that divorce tends to impact them in the sense of having failed to be the provider and the protector, even if the relationship itself wasn't, you know, wasn't a good one, that that tends to be sort of something that has impacted them, um, in, you know, in terms of how they, they view themselves and their ability to provide and protect for their family. And so that's usually something that we work through. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it depends, but there are a lot of common threads. Does it matter when you're working with somebody who left or who initiated in the divorce? Do you see a difference? Um, I, not necessarily. I think that usually by the time there, there can be a shock factor if it has caught someone off guard. Certainly there's, there's usually the shock factor to work through. But again, that comes down to a lot of the feelings are the same of, of abandonment or surprise or really having the rug ripped out from under you. However, it was that it happened. And even if, if it was your 
if you were the one that initiated it, I would think. Um, but really what it comes down to is sort of the emotional processes underneath and how the whole process manifests and how you sort of go through stages of grief about it and like how long you stay in those stages and how long you sort of are stuck in the shock of it, I guess. So. And like me, you've got firsthand experience. I have, I have <laughs> a little bit of experience. <laughs> like, yeah, people always ask, oh, have you been married? I say, oh, once or twice. <laughs> Who's counting? Once or twice. <laughs> and people always say, oh, would you get married again? I said, I would absolutely get married again. What yeah. I will not do is get divorced again. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and uh, I find it interesting that I think it's something that I don't know that I could discuss having not been through it. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, before I got married, I've had breakups, right? I've right. Been, been in love and those felt have fallen apart, but that stepping over that line to be married and be together for a while and it falling apart, I would, I think I'd be hard pressed to actually believe somebody that hadn't been through that. It is. While there are commonalities between breakup and divorce, divorce is a singularly painful experience all of, all its own that is separate from the breakup in ways oh, yeah. that if you haven't been through one, you don't understand. And there are things that you can say to someone that has gone through the divorce process who's willing to be honest about it. That was the first time in my life that I have ever just like spontaneously cried out of nowhere. Like, because it was really? such a, there was, you know, I remember one day, this was a, <laughs> The first time um, <laughs> I was standing, I was getting, I was in my mid twenties and I was getting a coffee one morning with a barista that I knew. And she said, good morning, Jen, how are you? And I said, good morning, Kate, I'm getting divorced. And then I started bawling right there. And I was like, oh God, I'm so sorry. She's like, um, your, your coffee's on the house today. <laughs> Thanks. I'll take this hot mess somewhere else. <laughs> Was that the first time you'd actually said those words aloud? I, you know, I think it was. And, and aloud to someone that wasn't, you know, my my immediate family or my best friend. And there was just, there was something in my experience going through it, it, there was something that was sort of uniquely raw about it. Because honestly, with my first marriage, I don't know that we got married because we thought we were supposed to. Not, I think, because really, I mean, we... He was great. I was great. It was not, but we really had no business being married. We did it because it was the social script that you were supposed to find a nice middle-class person with a nice family and a nice job and get married and have nice kids and, you know, that whole thing that we're sold. And if you didn't do that, then there was something badly wrong with you. But but there was just something that was, that's different, I think, about having had that, you know, marriage is hopefully meant to be for life. I mean, I don't know that anybody consciously goes into it thinking, well, I don't know, we'll see, right? Like you tend to go into it thinking that there's, it's going to be a lifetime commitment. And there's a sort of, in my experience, it was just kind of a ripping and a shattering of something that I, it was in that case, I think more just the institution of it. And I had also come from a family where everybody, I was the first divorce. I was the first divorce among my friends. I was, you know, all my grandparents, aunts and uncles, my parents just celebrated their 49th wedding anniversary and they're genuinely happily married. So, you know, it was very much a departure from anything that I thought would be. And all of a sudden you're in this weird uncharted territory where, you know, you have no idea what's next now. So from day to day, I can't plan for tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen. Life is uncertain. So. 
<laughs> now I gotta find a place to live. Yeah, it could be eating monkey brains in Botswana tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it's finding a place to live. It's finding a, you know, and that's, I think, honestly, sometimes what keeps people in situations long past their expiration date is well, what do I do next? Like, how do I actually separate this? How do I, you know, how do I, how, what does life look like on the other side of it? And I think sometimes people stay in relationships far past the expiration date because they're not quite sure what does that process look like and don't necessarily want to face it down. So, which I can understand, but. I was talking to my son about this and not so much in the context of relationships, but more in the context of perseverance and that there's, fine line between working through frustration and seeing something through and then just literally sound sand down a rat hole Mm -hmm. and knowing that that is a bottomless pit and now you're just doing it because you were doing it and there's no returns and i think we were talking about work or homework or something i think he was like freshman in college or something like look if you don't like your job Right. And you've given it all you can and you're still not digging it. And you can look yourself in the eye in the mirror and go, I have given this all that I can. And there's not turning around. Leaving it is not, there's no shame in that. Right. And it's hard when it's a legally binding contract with another human being that at one point, one or the both of you were in love or still in love. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, well, and, it, and no, I think I, I, well, I can pick up where you, <laughs> where you were going. This is now where you're hosting. So <laughs> now you ask me some questions. <laughs> but I think it, you know, the the thing is, and this this honestly goes into the the coaching piece of it is, all of our shit comes up in relationships. That's where all of our crap comes up. It's where it comes to light. And so you take two flawed people who may or may not have done any work on themselves at all, and you smush them together in the same house, and go, oh, tra la la, let's do this forever. And then all of a sudden, you know, all all these things start coming to the surface. And it's not that, you know, I still, people sometimes will challenge me on that of how can you believe in marriage? How can you believe in happy relationships? I absolutely believe it's, it it is absolutely. It's just that we go into it from a flawed place Mm -hmm. and, and really you're taking all your wounding and their wounding and smushing them together. And if you have no self-awareness, you end up. I mean, it's just a recipe for badness and it really isn't the institution of marriage. It's the humans that are in it. And, you know, it's that. And and with my first marriage, we, like I said, we really had no business getting married in the first place. And it was one of those, it was a very amicable divorce. Not, it was painful in its own way, but it was amicable in the sense that I think he would have stayed in it forever to kind of satisfy his family, his Mother called it the great tragedy, and I wanted to give her some other things that were possibly more tragic than our divorce. God love her. But, you know, we all have our different perspective. I'm like, mm, okay, genocide. Okay, no, sure. This is this was the great tragedy. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> but for us, you know, and I, I say we could have stayed married. We could have stayed married. I don't believe that either one of us would have been genuinely happy. We would have made it work. We would have probably had children. I probably would have weighed that 7,000 pounds because I would have been eating my feelings. And maybe down the line, we would have been one of the couples that got divorced when their kids went to college because we had just been, you know, staying together for the sake of the kids, which people certainly do. And he is now, to my knowledge, happily married, living in California, has two little girls, and his life has gone on and my life has gone on. And I think we, you know, it was the best thing for us to have done that and it is not an easy decision to make 
no matter what the circumstances are, it's not an easy decision to make. And staying in it would not have been the right choice just because, you know, like you said, sometimes walking away from something is the right thing to do. I've seen it somewhere, Instagram probably, where it was dating is wondering why somebody is single (laughs) and then finding out why. <laughs> and and I have to admit on the online platforms when I see somebody that like I'm looking for my person, I'm looking for this thing, like where it seems that the the balance in a relationship is not 50/50. Mm-hmm. Like like I know you're flawed. I'm screwed up too. Let's meet in the middle. Let's both work on it. But for me to like if you feel your life is incomplete because you're missing another person, ain't nobody gonna help you with that. Right. That's nobody can satisfy that. Exactly, and and that's usually what what I see happen. And I and I part of this I know because I've done this myself, and this is what I tell my clients. Like I know these things because I've done these things and I've learned from them. And when you, most people go into relationships expecting the other person to fill voids that there's no way that they can fill. Now, the reason we are biologically wired for partnership and there are things that a partner can give each of us of, of, and I'll talk in terms of like masculine, feminine energies, regardless of gender, that, that, that creates a polarity, right? And so there are things that, you know, a, a feminine energy gives a masculine energy that can only be in that dynamic. And so when people say, oh, you don't need a man or you don't need a woman, well, no, but you just aren't needing them in the right way. Or you're, you're trying, you're asking them to fill voids that it was never their job to fill. And if you can't find a way to be at peace with yourself and yeah, we're all fucked up to a certain extent, but do you know your personal brand of fucked up and do you know how to handle it? <laughs> like it's the care and feeding of Jen. Like here's, I know me and I'll work on my stuff and I'll own my stuff. And, you know, and I think that's the thing that's missing is people go into it from a place of ignorance about what it actually means to be in a relationship. And, and it's, you know, taking that person is never going to make you happy. It's not their responsibility. They should augment your happiness, not be the source of it. Because if you think they are the source of it, you will always be disappointed. So, Right. <laughs> right. Trying to guess what's in somebody's head. Right. Or... I, you barely know what's in your own head. How the hell are you going to guess what's in anybody else's? <laughs> Man, it's like Mad Max up in there some days. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't expect anybody to read my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an episode of SpongeBob or <laughs> Fury Road on the right. worst times. <laughs> totally depends. My inner monologue is yeah. <laughs> well, and I I would get married again, and it's I equate it to going for a mountain bike ride, mm-hmm. and that I get a flat tire. I'm not going to throw the bike away. I had something that went sideways that affected that particular event but um no i totally would i would Mm -hmm. go into it with a different perspective and i'd be looking at it for a different need in my life but i would yeah 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 so what i'm asking is jen will you marry me (laughs) yes (laughs) but i'm signing a prenup (laughs) it's on a cocktail napkin If you're a closet alcoholic, we're done. But anyway. <laughs> oh, no, it's right there on the table. <laughs> it's right there on the table. <laughs> well, 
and I think that fundamentally comes back to do you learn from your experiences and do you right. learn from the things that you, and the, it's it's unfortunately as I say age is no indication of maturity it's just an indication you didn't die yet so it's you know just because someone is in their 50s or 60s out in the dating world doesn't mean they've actually learned anything by virtue of age so you can't make that determination and it's what have you gone through in your life what have you learned from are you self-aware enough to kind of you know, understand where you are with things and be able to communicate that to somebody else. And um, I, that has to be a choice. And a lot of people still go into it very unconsciously. And, and it sort of tweaks me a little bit when people get very bitter about the institution of marriage. I'm like, it's not marriage. It's the flawed human beings that go into it. <laughs> like most things in this world, it's the flawed human underneath. Like it's not gender, sex, race, anything else. It's the human underneath. So, Yeah. So here's a here's a relationship slash romantic question for you that I posed to my friend Julie uh, last summer, and <clears throat> we were going up mountain biking, and I think she had come off some just tedious, terrible dates or just uh, just mildly irritating, right? And we're driving up to Buffalo Creek, and it's probably about this time of year. The sun's going down behind the mountains, and we're just having an awesome time up there, and we sort of came to the realization that that's wonderful and a person coming into a relationship as a a date or a partner has to be more enriching than that Mm -hmm. and from that conversation I asked her the question thinking back to previous relationships so here's the question long setup do you feel that your romantic bell and I'm equating to like you see somebody and for the first time, right? Do you feel that that can ring as um, powerfully and as loudly as it did when you were in your 20s? Uh, I think the answer is yes with caveats. Yes, in the sense that the the hope being, or at least I can speak for myself, that now when I feel that I always, I don't rush into those things headlong. And assume that that, you know, you, you understand, or I understand that it really takes time to get to know somebody. And I think that when you, you don't want to lose that, that rush of excitement. Like when you have that connection with somebody, like that is something that's special. But I think, you know, when you're younger, you're sort of unmarred and unscarred and unsullied by life. And (laughs) so you're just kind of wide-eyed and doe-eyed about things. And so it's easier to kind of have that like, you know, wide-eyed puppy love. And but, but by the same token, that means you sometimes rush into things and expect that to just carry you through. And that's not what creates a lasting and sustainable situation. So it's, you know, going back to the, the online dating thing, I think, or just in, in general, the dating world, it's sort of, I feel like it's that immediate gratification that people are looking for. And like people don't realize and I didn't realize until I did the you know did the work and invested in in sort of understanding these things of you really don't know anybody after six months even like it takes time to like who are you really and like build some build moments with them and get to know them and get to know the human underneath and then if you have you have chemistry is that like pop right that's that immediate yes exactly but then it's the alignment piece of it that comes with it. You know, if he wants kids and you don't, like 
that's a pretty big alignment issue. That's never going to be something that's going to fit. And I think people just tend to, because we want to believe in love. And I do think that at the core, I mean, love is a beautiful thing. And who doesn't want to believe in that? And so we want to sort of gloss over it and go, it's okay, we'll figure it out. No, you won't. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a foundation for a relationship. (laughs) So... So in your um, post-divorce phases, have you had relationships where you knew they had a pretty short half-life, but they were either fascinating, however you want to define it, where, and and I'm taking the sexual piece completely out Mm -hmm. of this, were there things or were there people that you had dated that were so fascinating, interesting but you knew like this just was very, very short term that you still did it because it was a wonderful experience. Hmm. That's a good question because I don't know that after I got out of my first marriage, um, I immediately got into another relationship with a guy that I had known before, which was don't do that. Give yourself time. (laughs) A year. I'm telling everybody. Yeah, at least. least. But after that, I did something that, and and I guess it was, I didn't have a, I don't know that I ever had a conscious thought of knowing that it was always going to be a short-term thing. But after that relationship ended after my first divorce, I did something I had never done, which was date, just date lots of people, you know, and get to know a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sometimes what's missing is, getting to know people, having fun. You know, I had a guy I'd go out with this night, that night, this night. And and it wasn't an exclusive situation. It was just, we were all just getting, to, you know, everybody was out in the dating world. This was when I lived in Florida. And that was a lot of fun because I got to, that was for me an opportunity to see that there are a lot of really nice guys out there, but not necessarily the nice guy for me. And you can go hmm. out and have a really good time with people and not walk down the aisle with them. And I, I just hadn't dated really before I met my first husband. And so... I was sort of in a different mindset of, oh, well, he's nice. Okay, let's get married. And then when I lived in Florida after that and and started dating more and realized that, oh, no, there can be lots of great guys out there. And I did. I had, I mean, I've had very, very few bad like dates. I've had some interesting stories, but, you know, we all, we all do. But I've had very few bad dates. But a lot of them, I was like, oh, he was just really nice, but just not, you know, we had a good time, but just not a, didn't quite click. So I don't know that it's ever been anything conscious coming back to your question of going into it and knowing that it had a shelf life on it. But I think it was more just the opportunity to date for fun and and date for fun in the sense that if something comes of it, great, but not going into it like hunting, like I'm not husband hunting. Right. And I think a lot of people go into men and women go into it like I'm wife hunting, I'm husband hunting. Well, that seems like a kind of recipe for disaster, but okay. (laughs) Just even the the, the <clears throat> abstract definition of those words, um, not the literal definition between hunter and prey. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, right? <laughs> you don't you don't tell them this when you sit down, <laughs> do you? Just want to explain your your hit rate. <laughs> Some people do that. Some people do that right up front. Like I actually had a guy. This is after my my again sweet man and i hope he found a a woman that was at that point much less cynical than i was (laughs) was, 
I think it was the first date. He had met him through mutual friends, and he took me out to a very nice dinner. And he was sort of giving me his marital resume over dinner because he'd never been married before. And you kind of recognize this when people are like ready to get married. And so he was sort of like giving me this whole thing of how secure he was. And then he said he wanted to get married in Maui or have his honeymoon in Maui. I forget. And I got all excited because I love Hawaii. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Hawaii's great. He goes, yes, but I want to do it for a specific reason. And I was like, oh, God. And he goes, because I want to write in the sand, just Maui'd. And I put my knife down on my stake and I said, sir, I'm entirely too cynical for you right now and this will not work. <laughs> so I wish you the best of luck. So it was right after my first divorce and breakup. And I was just at that point, I was, you know, still in my my late 20s. And I was like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> God bless him. I hope he's happily married now. <laughs> you just don't I just don't roll that out on the first date. <laughs> wow. I hate puns. That may be the worst. Oh, one no, I've I like heard. them. But I like them when they're ironic. <laughs> Not like, he was 100 percent serious <clears throat> about it. <laughs> very sweet. Very sweet. Not the right guy for me at that point in time. So. Oh, man. I'm seeing a spinoff podcast here between the two of us, which is dating tips. Dating tips. Yeah. And, and actually, my friend Julie and I talked about this on that same drive. We were yeah. going to start a podcast that um, called Men Are Dumb. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure the title is taken, so I'll have to work on that. But um, it would. And the, the premise was that uh, she and somebody else would be relating their dating stories through me as a filter. Uh-huh. And I would be the man whisperer or translator or something like that but we'll put a pin in that we'll come that's back that's a gr- well you know that's an interesting <clears throat> thing though is that no one we are wired very very differently and even going into dating situations and that's a lot of the challenges that i certainly experience and that i see a lot of my clients experience too one of the things i a lot of my well all my clients we usually work with you know relationships because it comes up <laughs> so <laughs> of sort of how men and women are wired very differently. And, you know, it's not good, bad, or indifferent. It's just when you don't understand the other one and how they operate, their behavior is going to be incredibly confusing to you. <laughs> so. Right. Right. Uh, one more thing on that. I want to get back to the, the positivity bypass. I go into it. I know this is not a mathematical possibility, but with a positive zero expectation. Mm-hmm. And not having no expectations because I think that could be if you say that enough times in my head that it I think it would steer towards the negative mm-hmm. and I've been asked well what are you looking for I'm like I don't know not and I have boundaries right, right. like I'm not opposed like I said not opposed to marriage but other than that it's like um why don't we just enjoy each other and see what happens yeah. and that's an answer that some people really don't like. Well, and I think that, you know, of of seeing dating as just getting to know somebody and having it be just that. Because the truth is, when you sit across from somebody, even from the third date, and, and I know women in particular are really bad about doing this. Of Like, well, he said he didn't want a relationship. He said he didn't want this. He, you don't know. You don't even know him. Like, what do you care? Maybe he eats his boogers. Like, you don't know him yet. Like, why are you all spun up about this? And just go and have fun and get to know somebody. And you, if you enjoy the first date with them, then go on another date with them and just see sort of how it plays out. And if it hits a point where, you know, like, I, and you and I may have talked about this the other day, it's not necessarily red flags. It's just sometimes you get pieces of information. You're in a, an observing phase, observing the other mm. person. You're observing 
how are they interacting with the waiter? Are they on, you know, consistently late? Are they, you know, what are, are there patterns that are emerging? Do they talk about like horrible things about their ex a lot? That's kind of an obvious one, <laughs> but <laughs> you are, you're gathering information, just getting to know somebody. And that's really what dating should be. And so if you don't know on the first date, that's not a bad thing. So <laughs> and I, you know, years ago when I got out of the the relationship that I was in and I dated a lot around Denver and I went on some really awesome dates with some really great guys and some of them were just for states and we just didn't talk again after that. And I don't know that anybody hacked anybody off. It was, it just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't a vibe and mm-hmm. cool, but we shared a great time. We shared a great dinner, had good conversation and I think that if the mentality behind it was less of sort of, and I think women also go into it sometimes if they haven't done work around with their guard up of kind of having that like bitch shield, sorry to say that, but it is, it's like, well, you know, who are you and what's this? And, you know, I don't know. It's just a very, I don't know if you experienced that, but I just, I feel like that's an energy that I got sometimes from women of like almost being on guard of wanting to protect themselves and find out up front, like, what do you want from this? Like, what are you looking for? Like, what is this going to turn into sort of? I have been asked that a couple of times and I answer candidly. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I, it, and depending on my mood, which is generally pretty good, I'm never confrontational or contentious about answering that question, but I'm pretty satisfied as an individual with friends and family and kids and hobbies and things like that, that I do not to avoid intimacy or a relationship. Mm -hmm. These things actually, like this conversation, this podcast is very, very enjoyable and enriching to me. Same thing with all the various forms of biking and frisbee golf and reading books and I don't ever sit around and go, oh, there's nobody else here. I'm usually trying to learn something or entertain myself or things like that. And so the answer would be, well, you need to do that on your own. And the way I would would typically phrase it would be is that you have to go off and have adventures. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go off and have adventures and we'll come back and we'll talk about it. And you need to be interesting because and the, uh, please forgive me. Like I'm kind of interesting. <laughs> as, as Humble that was, too. <laughs> oh, I only said that in the context of this question. Right. But it's true. Like I, I like to be around interesting people sure. who do interesting things and it, I cultivate it mm-hmm. and I work at it. And it's not just, I didn't just, you know, show up and all of a sudden, these things have happened. And so what am I looking for? It's like a compliment to that, or I'm not afraid of being challenged either. So, and it's a very vague question with no endpoint. And I could see how even that could frustrate some people. Yeah. But I think that's the, you know, that's the honest answers you want, you know, going back to what we're saying about you want to be, you want it to be a compliment and you want to be able to, because things happen in life. And if something happens and you're not there to be, and that person is, putting everything on you well that doesn't that's not sustainable right you need to be able to go you need to have your have a full life right Mm -hmm. i heard one coach i worked with talks about it being like the life pie basically like you have a pie and and a man or a woman cannot be 90 percent of that you have you know health fitness career hobbies you know self-care whatever else that you're doing and they are a piece of that but not 90 percent of that which is usually 
the ratio that people work from. So that's good. Yeah. Okay, so positivity bypass yes. in rah-rah culture. <laughs> so Matt has some opinions on rah-rah culture coaching, and he screened me to make sure I wasn't a rah-rah culture coach. So here we are. I passed. <laughs> so when I say those definitions to you, what does that mean? And why are you not that, which is why you're sitting here. Right. <laughs> I made, made the cut. <laughs> a friend actually, I told him I was interviewing somebody and I said, she's a, a coach, a relationship coach. And he's like, dude, and I, no, <laughs> she's cool. Trust me. Like if anybody knows me, you know that the gen is, all right, hey, I'm going to shut up. Well, so, so it's a great question and I absolutely have, I have opinions about this. But I think there's a big difference between having between things that that actually do create a foundation for a positive, healthy life. And then there's this whole things become cliche. And again, this is something humans do to things and they do it to coaching. They do it to everything. It's it becomes this like it's the hashtag live your best life. Well, okay, but come on, like not everybody's going to quit their effing job. I'm trying not to cuss. You Quit their job don't and go- <laughs> <have to. laughs> I try to be respectful on other people's <clears throat> podcasts. No. But, go nuts. You know, it's that whole thing of like, oh, follow your passion, live your dream. You can't quit your fucking job and move to Bali if you've got two kids. And, you know, there's just different situations where I think that it does a a disservice. And I think sometimes people go into to, to things like coaching, you know, that's the thing is coaching is like health and fitness. There's a very low barrier of entry. Anybody can call themselves a coach right now. And as a client, you need to use discernment as to whether or not you feel this is a person that can help you. But anyway, to your point, this, this idea of, you know, everything is sunshine and rose petals and fluffy bunny farts doesn't give credence to the fact that shit happens in life and things happen. And so how do you how do you get the foundation and the tools to navigate through that, to resource yourself through good and bad times, and to also have the tools to understand how to process the negative and heavy things that happen? And that's one of the things that I see happen so much is that it's the positivity bypassing that jumps right to, oh, don't feel that way. Just, you know, change your mindset. That's the rah-rah piece of it. And, and it really bothers me because <laughs> it and it sort of is one of those things that I it kind of tweaks you in because I'm like I'm a coach too and they're gonna think I'm like that just like your friend um <laughs> but the thing is is that this is you know we live in the we live in the real world and that yeah. means things are gonna frustrate us things are gonna trigger us things are gonna happen and so how do we understand how to deal with that how do we know how to identify our own stories that we're telling about things how do we learn how to resource ourselves through when things are challenging, when things are hard, you know, when we came through COVID, a lot of people had to stop their lives and actually sit with themselves. And that was something they hadn't done prior to that because they kept busy and kept running and didn't sit with themselves and didn't, you know, face these things. And so there was, and, and a lot of heaviness in general. And, and how do you work with that when you're having, you know, the heaviness in life happens there, if there's a death or a divorce or, you know, anything else that happens, that's just not happy, fluffy bunny feelings sometimes. How do you navigate through that and do it in a way that honors how you feel while not living in it? And that's, I think, the thing that I really work with my clients is first and foremost, let's process what's here. You know, if if we're dealing with something, we need to work with the feelings that are there and process through the feelings that are there 
And then we can shift into, okay, now what am I going to do about it? Right. And usually what I see is one, I see it going one of two ways, which is either people stay stuck in it or they bypass over it and then never actually deal with it, which is only going to mean it's going to come out later louder and worse. And so while the, the positive focus is important, it's also important not to bypass what's real and what's there. Because that comes back to the vulnerability, the authenticity, all the stuff that makes us real. And and the positivity bypassing is how we have people whitewashing their lives on social media and other people looking at that and going, oh, well, my life's not like that. So I must not be doing it right. And that's what I say. I always tell my clients, I'm like, I am not the coach that's going to tell you to quit your job tomorrow and go run off to Bali unless you just happen to have a couple mil in the bank. And that's what you want to do. Like, and if you do and you have the means, go do it. But chances are that's not you know, what most people have at their disposal. So that was one of the transformative moments for me was when, excuse me, I was given the license to feel bad. Yep. And I had, there were, I think I've talked about this before. There was a therapist that said to, you know, just stop beating myself up about like looking at a beautiful afternoon with my daughter and feeling sad Mm -hmm. and then kicking my own ass because I was feeling bad and I felt that I shouldn't. Right. And I coupled that with uh, learned optimism that gave me actually context and tools to go through those rough periods, understand that they're temporary. And that's why I wrote that down, not living in it. Mm -hmm. It's like I feel this way for an hour or a day or two. Right. And just saying it's okay to feel bad. Yes. And that is one of the things, because what happens, what you alluded to there is, it's a shame spiral. And shame is the very, I mean, we are, we are energy. We have physical bodies, but we also, our energy is real. Shame is the very lowest vibration you can possibly be in. And when you don't allow yourself to feel something, I I talk all the time in my blog and podcast about shitting on yourself. When we should on ourselves and say we should or shouldn't feel something, we're shaming ourselves. We're bringing we're bringing that energy farther and farther down, and so we just we're making it worse. And that's the thing is that you can have. I always say keep things in perspective. Yes, count your blessings, and all things are relative. You're still allowed to have a bad day. You're still allowed to have a bad emotion. That's another thing that pisses me off, is this this feeling that like I. Oh my God, we have so many blessings to be sitting here right now, to have internet, electricity, to be able to listen and do this podcast in general. Those are amazing blessings that a lot of the world doesn't have. And so, yes, I absolutely count those blessings. Every day I count my blessings and I'm still allowed to have a bad day. It's all in perspective. Mm -hmm. And, but that's the important thing. And I work with this with a lot of my clients too, of where they feel guilt and shame about, you know, like, well, I have everything I want to know. I have this beautiful family, but like, I feel so tired or, you know, mommy guilt or daddy guilt or whatever it is that comes up. And it's like, that's okay. Let it be there because if you don't let it be there and honor it, it's just going to get worse. You're going to shove it in the closet, except it's not going to go away. And then people end up like drinking or over shopping or overspending or overdoing something to try to, you know, stay away from that. So honor the feeling, honor what's there. If you feel sad, feel sad. And then that's part of what I tell my clients, I try to work myself out of a job. Like I want to give them the tools where they have the foundational tools for the rest of their life, no matter what comes up, because it's really comes down to some very core things of how do you work through feelings that you have? How do you connect to the feelings that you have? 
And then how do you resource yourself? I talk a lot about resourcing yourself <clears throat> through, <clears throat> especially times that are that are challenging, but just in general, like resourcing yourself on a normal day is, did you get enough sleep? Are you eating well? Did you do whatever workouts you do or move your body in some way? You know, are you focusing on the positive because the negative is always there, but so is the positive. You can always, you know, that's, that's an application for positivity that is a useful one, right? Your focus. And you mentioned learned optimism, I think, and in that context too, but don't bypass it. Let it be there. Allow it to be there and accept that you feel that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking around and everything is beautiful and I still feel sad right now and that's okay. But don't live there. Don't get stuck there. Don't set up camp, you know, decorate wallpaper. <laughs> People use wallpaper anymore. I don't think so. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. I Hopefully have, that's not so. a trend that comes back. There's awful wallpaper. Oy, oy. <laughs> I have to admit, when you said that you wanted to work yourself out of a job, mm-hmm. that was something that so resonated with me because of it, it, it confirmed my gut feeling of your legitimacy of wanting to help the people that you're working with and for. Mm-hmm. I The best thing for me, I would, and, and I just, I have a new client I brought on board the other night and I told her the same thing. I said, I would, my hope is always, she was a referral from another client. My hope is always that I love my clients. I get very, very attached. I tell them like, I have attachment issues. I want to know how you're doing for the rest of your life, but I want to empower you so that you have the tools and foundation that that's it. You're done. And if you come back, we're working on something different, right? Or you, or we maintain the relationship because you, you know, it's like the, the quarterback that wants always to have the professional coach, but my goal is to is to empower and and heal and give the tools to my clients so that then they go and tell their friends and then that way I can help more people that way and we can have more of a positive ripple effect that way. And so I always tell them in the very beginning my goal is to work myself out of a job and to give you everything you need so that you can walk away and know that you have that toolkit for the rest of your life. I incredibly respect that. <clears throat> Thank you. So when you're working with your <clears throat> your clients and they're in the, you know, various stages of grief, have you had to put up empathetic barriers so that you don't revisit what you've been through? What is what is your process to stay engaged but perhaps emotionally detached? It's a it's a great question. Um, that with with a multiple sort of answers to, to to that. The first of which being that I believe when you hit the point of being able to help someone else with something that you've experienced, there needs to be a, a degree to which you've processed it yourself, mm. right? Like if there are things in my life that I'm working on now that I'm not yet ready to help other people with because it's still, there are still things that I'm taking that journey. And so for me- Can I ask what those are? And um, you can say no, that's fine. They're, they're sort of- nebulous enough that it wouldn't necessarily be good conversation at this point, but (laughs) you can ask anything, but it's, it's sort of this like feeling of holding space for people. And I do energy work with people as another part. Like I really balance, like I have a foot in the real world and a foot in the woo woo world. It works real well. Um, but if holding, I had someone gave me an analogy once of as though you're holding sort of a bowl or a container in front of you as you're doing some of that work so that it's, you are not taking on to a heavier degree than you need to other people's emotions. Hmm. 
because it definitely is like I can feel it sometimes when I'm like doing certain healing work with people like I I feel it and I feel that emotion as well and it is sort of knowing and recognizing this is not mine and so I'm going to just sort of lovingly send it back to the universe to be transmuted and I that's sort of an esoteric answer to your question but it really is holding the space without allowing it to permeate you. And and again, I think it it's when you get to a point with working with clients on things, you need to have had a completion of some kind around your healing in order to do that. And so, you know, it was interesting when I sort of hit this point of realizing that, wow, I have a lot of ability to help people in this area because I have so much experience with it. I did ask myself the question, how do you feel about living in that energy. And, and that was a a path that I took myself through around it of, well, there are two ways to look at this. I can look at it as living in the energy of death, or I can look at it as living in the energy of rebirth. And for me, it's living in the energy of rebirth. And in order to go through any kind of birth, it has to be a painful process, but that what's on the other side of it is an upward journey, as opposed to be sort of living in the darkness and the whole of it. And that's part of why when You know, I want to make sure that when I work with people, they're at the point where they're ready to do that work. And it doesn't mean, like I said, you don't have to be smiling. Like you can be still in a puddle on the floor. But if you say, okay, I'm ready to figure this out. I'm ready to figure out how to get up from this. Then that's a different sort of energy than sort of being stuck in in the darkness of it and not not yet having made the decision, okay, I'm ready to come out of this or to start to find my way out of it. How do you evaluate somebody if they say they're ready and I have a very strong sense of your character and integrity, what would be reasons that you would refuse them and tell them no? It's you can, I mean, you can tell because people that aren't people and and this is the thing is that if I ever talk to another coach who has not invested in their own coaching, who has not invested in their own healing, first of all, you don't have any business working with people because I have paid over $100,000 myself in investing in really high-end coaching in emotional healing myself to have gone through that journey. And when you are at that point and when you find somebody that you really feel will help you if you do the work, take my effing money. Like people that are on the fence about it or don't. And I, you know, at the time that I was doing this, I was in debt. I spent, I signed up for coaching that I absolutely could not afford. I don't recommend that necessarily. Like I put some caveats around that. We can come back to that. That's not the point of the podcast. But (laughs) the point being that you invest in what you know you need. And so when people sort of are not, you can tell if people aren't ready. It's not just that piece of it, but it's sort of like if they have hesitation around, they're reaching out for a reason. So some part of them is ready to make a change. Right. If, if I'm having a discovery call with them, some part of them is at least curious about it. And I but I tell them up front of if you tell me you're ready to do this, whatever work it is we're doing, you tell me you're ready. I'm with you 100 percent of the way. And I'm we're, we're doing this. I can't do it for you, but I will I say I'll hold the flashlight. I'll guide you back on the path. I might roll up a newspaper, give you a little clap from time to time. Tough love. <laughs> but it's are you ready to do it? And I talk about it being and this is true for Anybody that's coming through anything, you have to make the sole decision that no matter what, you're going to come out on the other side of it. And this is true for addicts. This is true for any change in the world. You can go to rehab until the cows come home 
but until the, the, the person makes the decision somewhere within them that they are ready to make the change, nothing's going to be different. And so when people come to me and they, they are really ready, you can tell. Like there's just a, there's a vibe, there's an energy, there's a, you know, and I can tell usually from whether or not, like I have, I have one woman who keeps sort of popping back up again and she's not ready. Like I don't, I don't want her as a client, but she's also not ready to commit. So she keeps like falling off the you know radar anyway. <laughs> so people tend to self-select out. And, and I think when you're not, the other thing is I see a lot of coaches that get into a desperation energy because it's like, well you know, they have to pay their mortgage or, you know, whatever. Mm. That's a horrible place to be coaching from. It's a horrible place to be doing anything from, but I don't want to take on just any client because not any, and and I won't resonate with everybody either. That's the thing. Like I'm not going to be the right coach for everybody and that's fine because somebody else will be. That reminds me of what we talked about last week is that that moment of inflection where for me, I decide that I'm ready for something or, in a positive sense, or I have had it, it's usually fairly small and very quiet. Mm-hmm. And I think that may have been the origin point for like the rah-rah culture that we had had, because you're not always going to be motivated. It's not always going to be 5 a.m., the alarm goes off to use a gym metaphor and then head to your you know CrossFit class. Mm-hmm. That's not always going to be how you're going to feel. And then that was something else just in business and in life is understanding that those moments are going to be dull and quiet and solitary, not sexy, not I Instagram worthy. Mm-hmm. And I love that that's how you approach this as well. Yeah, because so much of that just isn't sexy and Instagram worthy. <laughs> it's boring. <laughs> Eating right, yeah. eating less and exercising, <laughs> it's boring. You know, and that's the, the thing is that you're not going to, and this is the thing that I think there's a misconception that you're always, always going to be excited to jump out of the bed and do things in the morning. And the truth is that you're not, you, you can be more often than not. If you have more days than not where you're dreading getting up, that's a very different conversation, sure. but it's, it's. I had a conversation the other day with with a young woman who was saying who was sort of unhappy in her career, and she's saying, "I don't know. I mean, you know, some maybe dream job isn't possible." And you know, she's sort of in this energy of of getting ready to settle. And I said, "Well, here's the misnomer that you're going to love anything you do all the time. I have by far found my passion, my calling in life. But there's plenty of stuff about what I do that I like. I have to do it because it's part of my business, but." I don't love it. Like it doesn't just like light me up, but you have to do it for these other things. And that's the, I think the point of, I don't, you know, I have a a pretty disciplined workout regimen and I don't always want to work out, but there's also the discipline that you've created around it. And the fact that those daily, your life is the sum of the choices you make on a daily basis. And it may not be sexy and fun to, you know, eat that way or to do those things all the time. But again, it's, how do you want to live your life? What do you want to create in your life? And and I talk with with clients when when they're talking about like health and fitness of, yeah, you, you want to get to the point where you are taking good enough care of your body. You can go out for a night and have, eat whatever you want, drink whatever. But the bulk of the time, 90% of the time you're eating well, 
you're, you know, moving your body in some way, you're building muscle, you're doing all these things, like, because it's giving you a net positive payoff. You may not want to do it in the moment, but that's not <laughs> what it's about. Like, <laughs> some days where I get to be like, I don't want to work out, but you do it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not always sexy. <laughs> I always feel better after a run. I've never felt, <clears throat> I have never regretted a single workout or yoga, any anything. You don't afterwards. And that's the thing. You spend so much time, this is true of most things, you spend so much time dreading it and spinning yourself up about it. Shut up and do it. Like, Get up and do five minutes. That's what I always say. Like, just tell yourself, put on your shoes, do it for five minutes. If you want to quit yeah. after that, quit. You ninety nine percent of the time, you're not going to quit. So, yeah, you got to look at the long term vision of why you're doing things. So something tactical, and you talked about <clears throat> going back to not living in it. And mm -hmm. I know this is a broad question with a generic example, but to get tactical for someone that might be feeling in that are there things that you could generally recommend to get out of living in it maybe even open the door to that house maybe not leave it but at least open the door what yeah. would you suggest well so first and foremost it's understanding most <clears throat> of the time it's a we tell ourselves a lot of stories without really realizing that we're telling ourselves a certain story and it's realizing how much power you actually have to make different choices about things. And if you're caught in the suck of it, usually good, good examples of being caught in the suck of it are when you're replaying the same thing, like you're kind of going down that same loop and your friends may start to call you out on it. Like, okay, mm. I've heard this once and you stop. But when you're looping on things, right? And you're, you're unhappy, you're unsatisfied, but you find yourself looping, well... You know, and it's true of, of anything that we get stuck in. It's like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So realizing that the opening the door is realizing that you do have the power to do something about it. Now, there's no magic pill. I don't care what pharmaceutical companies tell you. There's no magic pill. There's no magic switch. But it's saying, I am so unhappy or unsatisfied with where I am, then I'm at least willing to acknowledge that there's something that I could do differently. And that could be a very small thing, right? Like depending on, and, and this goes into the nuances of depending on what the situation is, but changing something that you're doing and then observing, usually where I start with clients that are in that space is what is the story that you're telling yourself about why things are this way and why things are always going to be this way? Because we tend to make things, when we get in that, we make things permanent and pervasive and personal. It's, it's about us. It's always going to be this way. And there's just, it's, it's like this all the time and there's no, there's no hope for it. And so it's just observing what's the story that you're telling about why you're there. What's the story you're telling about why you're in debt? What is it that you have not been willing to see or face or acknowledge to yourself? Which is why it's important going back to sort of not bypassing things of there's always an intelligent reason for why we are or are not doing something. I truly don't believe that anybody is legitimately lazy. It's just that they haven't gotten to why they aren't doing the thing. And I'm not, it's not an excuse, but it's just, there's always some reason for why we're doing or not doing something. It's just that we haven't brought awareness to it. Because humans operate on the pain, pleasure, motivation. You do it to avoid pain or to seek pleasure. And usually we're trying to avoid pain and usually we're associating pain with whatever it is we don't want to do. And we get spun up on that story and then we stay there in this little bucket. So 
That is when I feel the most aware is when I'm asking myself, am I addressing what I'm afraid of? Mm -hmm. And also more of a productivity thing. Am I doing the most important thing in the moment? Right. Which I'm not always doing. I can admit that because I'm human and I get distracted. But I find that facing that fear has yielded the greatest results. Yeah, it's there's always a fear component. We are very, very simple human creatures that operate in an outwardly complex world. And when it comes down to it, like I said, there's only a couple core things that really are there to be dealt with, which is there's some fear that's underneath it. And if you peel back, I do this work with my clients when we're doing inner work around these things, is there's like the presenting fear, sort of the safe fear that's Mm. there. And then layers underneath it. And I can always tell when we hit it in coaching because that's when you cry. They cry. I cry. Whoever cries. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, oh, God, I'm going to cry. I'm like, we hit it. This is it. This is it. Write <laughs> this down. There, there's always some kind of fear there. And I say, you know, if you're sitting there, sit with what what's the fear and keep asking yourself, what's the fear underneath that? And usually it gets down to some core fear of humans walk around unconsciously thinking, am I enough and am I worthy of love? And there's always something that's connected to that underneath. And, you know, if it's a fear, I like Tim Ferriss. I don't know if you follow Tim Ferriss, but he talked at one point years ago about this concept of fear setting, mm-hmm. which I really loved. Of And I, I called it, I did a similar thing, but I called it worst case scenario planning. His, his title's way better. But it's like, okay, well, so what is it that I'm really afraid of? So if that happens, what will I do? Yeah. And chances are that's not going to happen anyway. But you're what you're doing is you're creating certainty for yourself that you have a plan or you have something that you will do about it. And the antidote to fear and anxiety is action. So do something, do something. Cause it's going to be worse if you stay there, I promise. So it's not going to get better. So, <laughs> Yeah. Huge Tim Ferriss fan. And yeah. probably one of the origin points of this podcast. And I remember after my second divorce, he had somebody on there that I'll look this up and I'll put it in the show notes because she was a meditation. I hate to use the word guru because she's Western, but she was one of the ones that brought meditation forward Mm -hmm. like in the seventies. And that episode did two things for me. First of all, it allowed me to wish happiness on, and I've never told, I've talked about my second divorce a lot, but never told this uh, on the recording that I could wish her happiness. Mm -hmm. And that was transformative for me. Yeah. The other part of that episode is that they referenced somebody else that when something bad happens and you start going down, what you talked about, about the fear is that, you ask, so what, three times. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be very explicit in this example is that I said, oh, she's moving out, she's leaving. And it's like, my life is destroyed. And then I said, well, so what? And then, oh, well, I guess I'm going to be alone for a while. And these are, I think this is what I said. Well, so what? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to be going through this, but I'm familiar with it. And I'm so much more capable of going through it now. And I was like, so what? And I was like, I think I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. For a brief second, I actually felt good. And then that, you know, shattered. (laughs) (laughs) But then it 
was the case and I kept going so what and I do that fear setting where I get fired and like oh I'm gonna lose the house I'm gonna do this and then all of a sudden I think the brain responds to those challenges it does and That's looking for a solution that. yeah so I'm a doctor is what you're yeah saying. you are wow. <laughs> <laughs> sweet I'm gonna add neurosurgeon to my <laughs> it is it is true though and that and that is, there's certain processes that I go through with clients that are that, that what you really look for is like, like I said, pattern interrupts to things. And that's the key. And that is part of it is, again, it's not about denying it, but it's about, there's, I read some study recently that I thought was fascinating that an, an emotion only stays in your body, the chemical, because emotions are chemistry. It's, it all, everything comes through your brain, right? That it's, it's the chemistry that emotions only stay in your body for 90 seconds, like the chemistry around the really? emotion, but that it's our thoughts and our stories about it that have it persist for so much longer afterwards. And it is true that when you challenge yourself like that, you we cannot, our brains, we're basically operating with million-year-old, I mean, we're million-year-old biology with a computer like in our head <laughs> that nobody gave us the manual for. And you cannot not answer a question. And this is the other thing I do is, is asking, talking about my clients of what questions are you asking yourself? Because chances are you're asking yourself a shitty question. Like, why oh. is this happening to me? Why is this always? Ha-? And instead of asking a question like, so what? You go, well, it ha- you have to answer that. Like you, your brain cannot not answer a question. So ask a better question. Instead of asking, why is this happening to me? Ask. So what? It doesn't change what's happening. And this is coming back to, this comes back to resourcing yourself around things. It doesn't change what's going on, but it resources you in a different place to be able to operate within what's happening. And when you have that to come back to, you, your, I say your recovery time is faster. It doesn't take you as long hmm. to move through things when you have that tool. There's still a process. Everything has a process. It's just, it can take as long or as little as, you're willing to to give the energy and the focus to. So asking those questions, it makes a huge difference. So when you find yourself in suck of things and getting spun up, you know, like I said, we, we usually tell ourselves the same variation of a story about, you know, about things in general and challenging yourself on that. It doesn't change the situation. It's still going to suck for a little bit, but at least you've, you've resourced yourself into a different place around it. And you come back to interrupting that pattern when the heaviness and the suck of it starts to feel like it's weighing you down into a hole. I find that the perception of the problem sometimes is more important than the actual mechanics of the problem. Yep. Yep. Perspective and perception. Very important. And that's part of why, you know, people always ask, well, why do I need to go to a coach? Well, I still, I have a mentor that I still work with because you have a mirror and you have someone else to help you with a different perspective and help you with your perception about that perspective so that you don't get myopically focused on something you have somebody to mirror that stuff back to you or to challenge yourself to see a different perspective as well and that's why I always think it's you want to be able to work yourself through navigate yourself through things I've sort of always lived my life around this principle that I don't want to be relying on any one thing because if I don't have it then what am I going to do mm-hmm. and, and meaning like a, you know like I want to be able to work out work out my body without having to go to the gym because if I can't go to the gym well then you know I can't just not do something right and so it's that idea of like how do you 
navigate yourself through those things? How do you challenge yourself on how am I looking at this situation? What's a different way I could look at this? What's a different perspective I could take on this? Well, I like the, I think you're removing reliance, not out of fiercely independence. You're removing the uncertainty about reaching your goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also that you're not, I don't, and I, I, Tony Robbins came out. Sometimes I have a traffic jam in my head. I tell my clients it's like six thoughts traffic jammed in my head. And so like the computer like <laughs> glitches out for a second. That just happened. We've got all the time <laughs> in the world here. Don't worry about it. It's like traffic jam. <clears throat> Tony Robbins talks about I am not your guru. And this is what I tell my clients. And I think any coach, therapist, or anybody that tries to put themselves in a position of knowing better than you ultimately where, where you become reliant on them and it becomes a codependent relationship be mindful of that because it's, you need to be put, you need to be in a position where when a client hires me, you, you hired me to be a mirror. You hired me to push you out of your comfort zone. That's different than a boundary, right? But you hired me for a certain reason. But at the end of the day, this is your life. And that's part of what a, a good coach, mentor, therapist should be empowering you to live your life, not to be reliant on I have to go to therapy. I have to see a coach. I have to do this in order to live. Do that to expand, to grow, to continue to develop, but not to be reliant on that is a like codependence, I guess. Well, and it's not a sign of weakness either. But, to oh, go absolutely not. search for a trainer and a coach and a therapist right? and you know, a partner and a friend and a workout buddy. It's because we want to grow. Yes. I think that is finally starting to break apart. I My perception is that it's even more challenging for men having been sort of raised from the time they were little, largely, not, you know, you can't ever paint with too broad of a brush all the time, but that not to express emotions, that it's weakness to ask for help. It's the reason why so many of our veterans, you know, don't seek help that they need. It's a, it's a profound act of self-love to act, ask for help with anything and to want to grow and to want to get better and to say, hey, I've gone as far as I can go on my own with this. I'm going to bring in, you know, somebody who has a little bit more knowledge than me or who has, you know, a different perspective than me. And like I said, people, really talented sports players hire coaches. They have coaches for a reason. So <laughs> we're not, we are all biologically wired for community where none of us were designed to live alone like we just weren't humans weren't so yeah and on your own i could read a stack of books about whatever the case may be and without the objective viewpoint of somebody else how do i really know that's valid right right and just having that having that connection that conversation you you one of the things that i don't want to get onto politics or current affairs but one of the things that i believe is fundamentally missing is the ability to have intelligent discourse around subjects in a sense that you may not change my mind, but I will at least have learned more about your perspective and and not with no emotion, like no name calling, no anything anyway. So, but that is kind of to your point of having that, that um, interdependence with people and with, you know, finding different perspectives and broadening your horizons and expanding your perspective on things. I have no delusions. And the older I get, I have fewer and fewer delusions that I know anything. (laughs) Be humble. Be always be in the beginner mindset, beginner mindset that you can always learn. 
that's going to be a great answer <clears throat> when um, dates ask me what I'm looking for. It's like, I'm just going to be beginner mindset. <laughs> I don't know I anything. Don't no. <laughs> <laughs> I think he might be simple. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be, though. I really try not to overthink, not just relationships, but life in general. Yeah. Not try to overthink it. Yeah. And one of my keys to happiness the past oh, probably five or six years is that I don't try to work on questions that I'm never going to get the answer to, mm-hmm. which is usually why somebody did something. Right. Or, you know, it's like, let's boil it down to relationships, like online dating. You get ghosted. I'm never going to know. So why care? It's not... It's not a negative not caring. It's just indifference. I'm never going to get the answer. So why burn calories on that? That's taking me away from a book or a sunset or something else. Like I'm never going to know 100% the actual facts. So who cares? What does it matter? Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, this whole concept that in relationships of, well, I'll never get closure. I haven't, you know, well, you're not going to get the closure you want anyway, is usually what I say is, first of all, right? what is it you, what, and, and I've challenged clients on this of what exactly is it that you think he could say <laughs> that would magically make this better? And how many times has that worked for you? Because it doesn't, but you can go through the exercise and frustrate both of you. <laughs> But, you know, and it's a thing of, you know, there's this feeling and it comes from a little bit of a place of, and this is going to sound like a controversial thing to say, but a little bit of a place of self-absorption that the bit. other person actually, that it's it, it all remotely their responsibility to make you feel better about it. No, I'm not. I'm Humans do horrible things. I'm not talking about that. But even then, you're unlikely to change their mind about what happened. What is it that you always ask? What do you hope to get out of this conversation? Yes. And that's something that I don't think people always think about. It's like, what do you hope to get out of this conversation? What is it you think he will say that will just take it all away? And we get to the point that really there's nothing he's going to say that's going to make it any better. But on some level, I want to make him suffer. Well, that's just not good karma. (laughs) (laughs) But and that is also a process. And usually when it comes to, you know, it hits on the core of your self-worth for with with people, and this is most people who have not spent the time to do the work to to become aware of this. If somebody ghosts, they ghost. Don't take it personally. Like you can be a fabulous person and you just might not be their cup of tea. And usually people will internalize it that there's something wrong with them. And I want an answer. Like, tell me what's wrong with me. Tell me what's wrong with me. Why didn't you like me? Well, no, like just brush it off, right? Again, you don't know him. It could be Dexter, like just brush it off. (laughs) But it's, these are the things that, what that leads into is this idea of how much suffering we create for ourselves. Pain in life is inevitable. It's part of life. Shit's going to happen. Anybody that tells you otherwise is selling you something. Suffering is the part that we have control over. Suffering is the part where we keep ourselves in the place of feeling bad, of feeling awful. And that's where we camp out and live. That's the part where, and, and I ask clients, where are we creating suffering right now? What are we doing? Why are you doing this to yourself? Because you're doing it. Do you see that you're doing it? Like, and I do this to myself too. I've been there. Like, I get it. But you're creating suffering for yourself by that. You're not, there's no positive outcome to the energy that you're putting into this. And you're just feeling crappy in the process. So, yeah. 
don't waste the calories on it. <laughs> well, and it's not going to change the outcome because exactly. when you ask, what do you expect to get from this? If the relationship in this context is not coming back, they're not going to move back in. You're not going to rekindle things. Then what's the point? plane has hit the mountain we're not coming back from this right? right so you could get a 14 page uh contract this is you know you were right about this you're right about this but then they say look i'm still out of here so good luck like but your your question is so perceptive yeah. about what do you want to have happen from this and yeah most of the time for me it's a waste of time and, and, and I say that very easily. It, yeah. I came to that very, very hard to get to that realization about maybe it's just acceptance that, okay, if this is in stone and permanent, I need to get on with it. Yeah. It's, and that's, it's making peace with things that are far out of your control and accepting a lot of people, especially when relationships of any kind and stay very stuck in the but of wanting that to be different but the reality of the situation is that it's not like we have to deal with the reality of the situation it's okay that you don't like what happened it's you don't have to love it but at some point you need to accept that this is a thing you know there was a conversation i had the other day where his his ex was well if we were still married this wouldn't be an issue yes but you're not so <laughs> Like, technically, you're right, but you're not. So, <laughs> if a frog had wings. Oh, my God. That's what I said. <laughs> Did you really? Yes, if a frog had wings, it wouldn't buff its butt. <laughs> I said that in the moment. Yeah, I was just telling my mom. I said, I have these obscure, like, sayings that come out sometimes. And that was it. But it's true. And, and it's staying in. You don't have to like it. But at that point, that's your choice of creating the suffering around it. Yeah. Because things are not different and you can wish, and I have done the field work on this. You can wish all day long that something was different, but it's not going to change what's real. My second husband, the reason we got divorced is because he was a very high functioning alcoholic mm. and it was no longer safe for me to stay in the marriage. And don't you think I wished like hell it was different? Because if that had been, that's the only reason we were divorced because I did not go into a second marriage expecting to get divorced again. <laughs> so. You, you can wish things were different all day long, but the reality of the situation is they're not. And that's where you have a choice. People do not realize their power of choice. You always have a choice. You may not like the choices that you have, but you always have a choice. So when you say, I have no choice, it's bullshit and it's disempowering. Mm -hmm. You always have a choice. You don't have to like the choices that are available to you, but you always have a choice. You can make a decision. Yes. No yeah. matter how small. Yeah, exactly. And and you always have choice. You have choice over how you see the situation. You have choice over your actions. You have you always have choice. It's the one thing that can never be taken away from you, even if you're, you know, confined in, in a prison situation, wrongfully imprisoned. You have a choice as to what to do with your thoughts. No one can take that power away from you. And and people don't understand how real and how powerful that choice is that's real empowerment not there's so many things out there that are so cliche like i call myself chief empowerment officer because i just wanted like a cool funky title and when you can name your own title like i said call me the queen of chief i don't care but empowerment should be more about you 
truly understanding what is the power you have within yourself and realizing how powerful you actually are to influence your own life to make those choices, to choose. And so you can choose whether or not you stay in that suffering of the situation that happened. And some people do it for years and years and years. And it breaks my heart to see people stay in the suffering and the bitterness of a failed relationship in particular and staying in that. Like that's, but again, it's a choice and you can't save somebody that don't ever help anybody that didn't ask you for help, but you can't save somebody until they're ready to, to say, okay, I'm ready to make a different choice. The quote that popped into my head that you had mentioned before about, um, not living in it that landed again just with what you said and, and I'll get the correct attribution to this but I initially heard it in Aquila and the Bee that movie and well, yeah. it was our greatest fear is not that we're inadequate Marianne it's Williamson. that we're thank you yes it's that we're powerful beyond measure mm-hmm. and I remind myself of that when I feel it's like yeah I can do this it's easier to stay stuck in this and like man, this is tough. I don't think I can do it. It's so much harder to actually take the first step and dig and climb and build. And because, yeah, that's, that's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's not, it is easier to stay in victim mode. It is. And that Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that it, it drives you crazy to see, but until people are ready to, None of us change until we're tired of our own bullshit. I got tired of my own bullshit. I got tired of living the way I was. And was there one changes. particular piece of bullshit that was um, the last one? Yes. There there was a, I mean, there's all, we always, I've been into personal development for a long time to varying degrees, but there was, after my second marriage, I got into a relationship that I'm grateful for in the sense of it literally brought me to my knees, to the to my dark night of the soul where things were, things got so bad that I hit the moment of, and I talk about this on my first podcast, I hit the moment of, I don't want to be here anymore. Not that I would ever take myself out. Okay. I wanted to clarify. Too stubborn for that. But it was a point of, I can understand why people get to that point of desperation of where things just feel so bad and so heavy and so dark the, really what you just want is you want that to be different and you want it so badly to be different. And and you, that was sort of my moment where I was crumpled on the floor going, oh my God, I don't think I can do this anymore. And that was the still small voice that you talked about that basically came in and was like, tap, 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 tap. You know, let's, let's maybe not do anything extreme. And that was sort of the, the reckoning point for me of shit's gotten pretty bad. Like I have too many gifts, too many things I need to do in this life to be in this hole because that relationship for a variety of reasons um, was just very heavy and very negative and very dark and brought up a lot of stuff. And um, that was the point where I went, okay, things have got to change now. And I'm grateful for it because it, when you get that broken down, you have no choice but to, like, that's the point where you go, okay take my money. Like I don't have money to pay for this, but I know this is going to help me get out of this. And that's that point where you go, okay, things are going to be different. I have no idea how, I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this hole, but things are going to be different. And that was a huge turning point for me. I want to come back to that in a second, but just to match what you're saying, it was 327 in the morning on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. 
and hadn't slept more than hours, a few hours at a time for weeks and months. And it was the first time that I understood somebody that had committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do it, but all I wanted to do was not have the thoughts. And I wanted to just sleep and wake up and be refreshed. Yeah. So I, I understand it. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those things that people, when, when I did that podcast and, and I wrote a chapter in a book that when you, Ellen and I talked last night about having vulnerability hangovers, but that was, you know, and now I don't care. I'll talk about anything. You rip the bandaid off, but you really, I mean, you put your shit out there. And I was at that point, I was a, a VP in a sales organization. And I mean, nobody knew the shit I was going through behind the scenes, you know, because you put on a you put on a brave face, you go out, you do your job, you suck it up, right? And you come home and fall apart. But so many people were like, oh my God, I didn't know. Well, how many people, and this is why you have these vulnerable conversations and why I have no problem talking about anything that I've gone through, because if it helps one other person to go, hold on, I'm not alone in this, then that to me is worth it. And that they know that it had, you know, it's gotten to the point where I can see, yeah, I get it where it's so you just, you want it to stop. I don't know how I just make it stop. Right. And it's just that you want, you want it to be different. And that was the point for me where shit got real, real, where I went, okay, we need to do something about this now. So find a way to climb. That's that sole decision where you go, okay, you have a choice now, which, which road are you going to take? And when did that relationship, when did you sense the darkness? Because I thought that was a very interesting way to describe any relationship. But yeah. how long into it and what did that look like? Well, I I speak very carefully about men that I have had relationships with because I do believe everyone is on their own path. And I try to be very conscious of, of speaking carefully about it. Um, he had a lot of his own darkness and stuff that was sort of hidden under a facade. And it took me a while to see that. And it took me even longer than that to realize how, um, deeply ingrained it was, I guess. And I don't necessarily like to throw out terms like narcissist or anything, because I think they get tossed around in ways that people don't actually understand what it's really like to be on the receiving end of narcissistic rage. And that's a whole other level of like unpleasantness. Um, but it took me a while to see how, um, and it spanned over the course of, of years, you know. And, yeah, I was curious how long it, and, and it was together. It's interesting because it was when I went through that dark night of the soul, we had actually broken up. He had done something fairly cruel, but anyway. And I was thinking the other day, you know, you look back on your life and you go, God, why did I get back together with him? Because I did. I got back together with him. But I realized in retrospect, the reason I did it was largely because I I do have a fundamental belief that people can change if they decide they want to change. And I also didn't like how toward the end of that, the, that first segment of the relationship, I had started behaving in ways that were, it was a dramatic departure from who I am, the integrity I feel that I have, you know, it was... I mean, in a nutshell, he cheated on me for a long time and then I had a little dalliance and then he lost his shit. But anyway, doesn't didn't like it being oh, done back to him because it was way different. <laughs> but anyway, the, the girl he was happy, she, she's lovely. We had nice conversations. But anyway, 
I didn't like for how. Real? Yeah, no, really. She was lovely. We had very, int- I mean, still, we, we're not connected anymore, but she's a lovely person. And we just both sort of got drawn into it. And I mean, the someday there will be a Lifetime movie and HBO special about like the things that I don't know. I just, I was, part of it was I was very naive and um, I like to think the best of people. And there was a lot of deception and things that just literally to this day, when I think back on it, like blew my freaking mind. And I got back together with him because I was very disappointed with myself for not having just left, you know, for, for instead, you know, giving him a taste of his own medicine. And I'm not proud of what I did, but in retrospect, I got to be honest, he sort of deserved to feel what he'd been having everyone experience for his entire life because- According to the therapist that we went to, he'd done it on every woman that he'd ever been with, and his that's why his marriage fell apart. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> it, it's I talk about it very openly. I'm not, you know, there's no shame around it. It's something that I did, you know. But it was just such a that was the point that like led me to that point on the floor of like, who the hell are you anymore? Like, who are you that you're putting up with the things that he would say and do, first of all, and getting sucked into like the drama and the horrificness of all of this and that you had such a departure from your own morals and values that you don't even know who you are at this point. And so I got back together with him later on for a variety of reasons, but partly because it was like, I'm going to do this differently and I'm going to do this from a place of integrity. And no, it still wasn't the right fit. (laughs) How long were you together after you got back together? Oh, about a year, I think. Wow. Yeah, a little less than a year. But it was not a, it was a, it was, I believe, firmly meant to be in my life because I had not learned some lessons well enough in the past about, you know, and, and part of it was I came out of my relationship with my second husband it was a very violent and volatile ending. And I was very rocked and rattled from that. And I didn't take the time to really process mm. everything that had happened because I didn't know how at that point. And that's why I say this is why you don't positivity bypass over things. Because I went to, I did go see a therapist after that. And she said, um, you realize what you went through was a traumatic event. And I went, no, no, I'm fine. And she's like, we need to talk about the fact that you don't think that this was a traumatic event. Mm. <laughs> but I went to the relationship I went into after that. He was older. He was worldly. He was wealthy. He seemed like the knight in shining armor that I had, you know, always wanted. He was just an idiot in tinfoil hat. But it seemed like <laughs> at the time the sort of reward for everything that I had been through, right? Sure. Like I came through all this and here's this thing and no, it's not. And and I made my own mistakes and it. it's, you know, everything has two parts to it. I was very depleted in my own self-worth at that point. I was just, I was dealing with a lot of trauma, a lot of nervous system trauma from, from those things. And I didn't, you know, I would have done things very differently now, but, but that's how we live and learn. You know, and um, that's why you take time to process things that happen and you don't just jump into the next relationship. (laughs) So true. Yeah. Did you tell me what the actual Night of Dark was, the event? Did I I miss it? Or and do you want to talk about it? No, I I don't. I mean, I don't mind talking about really any of it. It was more just a culmination of things had been very... It was in December of 2016, and it was just, you know, he he had sort of, he did something fairly evil to me on my birthday, which is in October, and we broke up after that. 
And then he sort what, of... What was that? Oh, I mean, I this is just a fun story. So... <laughs> And again, you don't have to. Answer I don't. Any of you these know questions. what? We're we're here. It's fine. I'm I'm not naming names. So, um, he had concocted in his head, and it was really fairly elaborate. He had concocted in his head a story that I was cheating on him, which I wasn't. I had there was one person previously before anyway, and he concocted this whole entire plan to take me to Vegas for my birthday, stick me with the bill. And at midnight on my birthday, this big, like, coup de gras, I caught you. Like, I know, it's diabolical, right? Like, I look back on it, I'm like, oh, my God. But this is what, this is what he did. And so I, I mean, I didn't know. I was like, oh, he's finally doing something really nice for me. No. And so I ended up in the Vegas airport crying at 2 a.m., like, on the phone with my mother. So, because that's what you do. You call your mom. So... I was drunk because we'd been in Vegas having fun, right? And it's mm-hmm. my birthday, and I thought it was a fun trip. It was not a fun trip. Um, turns out that night he called the other woman and got back together with her. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, We're gonna need a whiteboard for it this. It was. I tell you what, it's a. It's gonna make a really good movie someday. It. It just is. I mean, it's a horrible thing to have lived through, but I. I just sit there and I. Like I said, I have made mistakes in my life, but. I'm, a, I'm still a little bit naive. And I was real shocked by the level of vindictiveness and the level of darkness in retrospect of what was involved in that. The the execution and the energy and the planning. Oh, yeah. If that was directed just remotely positive towards anybody I know, else. right? Like, I don't, and I guess I just sit there and again, I, I've made mistakes, but. I try to live my life not to intentionally hurt anyone and not to go out of my way to intentionally hurt someone, to punish them. Like that's a level of um, diabolical that I really just don't understand. And then there was a series of things that happened after that where I got back on dating apps because, you know, we were broken up. One of his friends like screenshotted my profile and showed it to him and somehow it was my fault. So I was stalked. I, he sent, like, I had, like, male trauma after, like, M-A-I-L trauma after that because he would just send me horrible things in the mail. Like, he was just, and he is a powerful, prominent man in Denver. He has money. He has connections. I felt very powerless in that situation. And that was part of what led me to that point of that dark night of the soul is he gets to do whatever he wants to me and I have no recourse, which now I know is complete crap. But at the time... I had no resources left within me to understand how to deal with that. And I didn't recognize my own self-worth at that point to recognize, A, that's not love. What What's going on there? It's possession. That's just horribleness. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I have, I talk about it openly because I think it's important for any other woman that's in that situation to see that we accept things in relationships without realizing sometimes how toxic and bad it is. And it's sort of like the boiling frog concept where it happens so gradually. And I think I also was operating a little bit from, I didn't want another, this was the story I was telling. I didn't want another failed relationship. Now it's complete crap. And I should have left him the first time he cheated on me, but anyway, but I didn't want another failed relationship and I was going to make it work. And that was my own story that I was telling the story that, you know, I was a two-time divorcee and somehow I just fucked up every relationship I was in. It was a BS story, but that was the story I was operating from. 
And I was, I had nervous system trauma from the stuff that happened with my ex-husband. And it was just a big old pile of crap that came all together in that. And that was the point that December where I was just so beaten down and I didn't know, I didn't know another side to it. I felt like I was constantly, you know, like he was going to always going to sneak out from behind the corner and do something to me because it was just a very, very bad, bad time. So that night was sort of the point where I went, all right, Jennifer, you got to get your shit together. I blocked him until I ran into him on a plane months later. I don't go to Vegas because I ran into him on a plane to Vegas months after that. (laughs) People are like, you want to go to Vegas? No, (laughs) absolutely not. (laughs) I'm done with that town. But, you know, that was um, that was it. It was just I had reached a point where I just didn't recognize myself anymore didn't recognize myself anymore. And that was the point where I was like, all right, it's time to do things differently. Coming out of that relationship, what was the first time you felt back like a shadow of your former self? Do you remember that moment? I I do. And I had the blessing of having, again, this is one of the coaches that I had reached out to. It was a program that was very transformative for me at that point. Because she was the one that really sort of, I wanted to say rub my nose in it, but that's not at all the right metaphor I'm going for here, held, held me lovingly and showed me how I was allowing myself to be treated and that this was wildly not okay. Who taught me about hmm. boundaries I needed to create, who taught me about what, who really was the mirror that showed me like, we need to back up through this relationship and I need you to see like clear eyes what's been going on here. And it was this like major oh shit moment of you're not valuing yourself, Jennifer. You're not taking good care of yourself by allowing this in your life. And I think it was, we broke up in August of that year and I took some time after that, you know, and then I got, I got back on dating apps and I was like, oh, this is meant to be fun. Like I recaptured my life again. Because through that relationship, I'd also gotten very isolated because he had sort of played this game with me of I had cheated on him, you know, once for like six weeks with one person. And so I was the bad guy in this scenario. Right. And because I was ashamed of myself and my behavior, I took all of his narcissistic abuse and internalized it rather than standing up and going, "Um, excuse me, (laughs) which, you know, now it would be a very different situation. But you know, and, and realizing like I had my life back. Like I planned a trip again by myself. I love to travel by myself. Where'd you, know, you go? Before. I went to Panama, which was awesome. I went on a surf yoga retreat, which was great. And like, I got my life back, you know, and I had just, I'd started my blog. This was really when my, I'd been coaching for a little bit prior to this doing just kind of, ba- you know, general life coaching. Um, but it's like, I got my life back and I was, I started to be me again. And I think it was around, it was around my birthday that year, which I was bound and determined was going to be a really good birthday. And I just remember like, there were a couple of pictures of myself where I went, oh, there you are. There you are. You, you could see you, it. I could see it again. And it was not even a return to who I was. It was sort of this new version. Like when you've come through something that's that intense and you go, oh, this is okay. This is what it feels like to have that cloud gone, to have that like terror gone to have that darkness lifted from you and I went okay this can be good so (laughs) 
Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's actually not something I've talked about on my podcast, but now it's out there. So I, I expect that the movie um, offer to come any day now from Lifetime. So. <laughs> I'm actually in a couple of weeks, thanks to my good friend Sarah interviewing a screenwriter. Oh, perfect. Tell him I got a story for him. <laughs> yes. And I'm thinking Kate McKinnon would play you. That would be great. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Of which I have no connection, but I just we can dream. It, we can so. put it out to the universe. <laughs> yeah, these things usually happen for me, so why not? So totally. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I I so appreciate your um, vulnerability. Absolutely. Like I said, if it helps one, you know, Ellen and I were talking last night at dinner about so many of those things happen behind the scenes, and none of I'm sure to this day, and and I don't have any interest in dragging him through the mud on anything, but. None of his friends know about that side of things. You know, it's like an unwillingness to own up to your stuff and what you do. And I will, when you are willing to own the things you've gone through in your life, no one has any power over you. No one has any power over you. And that was honestly a point that I got to when I started my podcast, when I started talking more openly about things, when that, when my book was published, which I think is a chapter in a book. So let me, let me be honest about that as a chapter in a book. But when that was published, I had a moment of, oh my God, he's going to read it. What's he going to do? I was freaked out for about half a second. And then I went, well, there's nothing he's going to say or bring up that you're not going to own. So if he comes after you, what are you going to do? Well, I'll just talk about it. So what? So what? Exactly. So what? And he's terrified of having his image shattered. And I pretty much talk about my shit out there openly. <laughs> so, but it was a moment of having of a very intense like fear of, oh, my God, what's going to happen? But again, I, I do try to treat these things delicately so as not to openly malign anyone else. What I shared today are facts of things that actually happened. Um, but I think it's important to share those things. And for part of why I, I call my program, why my podcast is Courage to Rise, is that people can see you've been there and they can see you've turned your life around. You, they can see the lessons that you've learned. And hopefully, I'm far from perfect, but hopefully who I am gives hope to other women who are in those situations that it's absolutely possible to come out of that and to come out of that and have an awesome life on the other side of it. And we all have a story. We all have baggage. We all have things we've done we're not proud of. Own it. Well, and, and naming him turns the spotlight rearwards. Right. And focuses on what was done. And that's not the power of this story. The power of the story is you dealing with it and overcoming it and getting back to who you are. Because that's never going to happen to you again. Right. So it's like studying history over and over and over. You can only, the allies win every single time, <laughs> right? Learn the lesson and move on. Yeah. But the, the power is you know, he can stay anonymous and that's fine because it right. doesn't matter to the weight and the, the distance you've gone in your accomplishments. Yeah. And that's the thing I think that people get caught up in that sometimes. And that to me is, an extension of wanting to blame or demonize or, or villainize someone in the story. And like I said, everybody's on their own journey and 
maybe he's turned his life around completely and i hope he has and i sent him lots of good wishes you want to bet on that (laughs) (laughs) i mean i have my own theories but i still continue to send love and light and he st- and and request universally that he stay far far yeah. away from me <laughs> but, but it is a you know and i i say i make different mis- i make new mistakes now learn yes. learn from it don't make that you know i i tell my clients it's a safe space i've made all the mistakes i've made most of them twice i have no judgment for where you are if you're willing to come and just own it like come and own it go hey this is what i did i made this mistake okay let's learn from it anybody can make a mistake it's what you take away from it and I will make all new mistakes in my life now, but there are some that I will never make again. <laughs> so learn the, what is it? Keep the lesson. It's like, keep the, keep the gift, discard the wrapping. Yes. Keep the gift, discard the wrapping. And so often we hold on to the wrapping that it came in. You can find, this is another thing, going back to sort of the positivity bypassing thing that is, I tread lightly on with clients because I genuinely believe that you can find a gift in anything that happens at some point when you are ready to, but it's not a gift until it's a gift. There are horrible things, rapes, horrible things that happen to people that I don't think you need to find the gift in that immediately. Like at some point when you're ready, if something positive in the end you are able to find from it, great. That's a very delicate balance, right? When you're talking with people, but that you can find something that you took away from it, that you can turn it into a positive at some point, even if it's that you're helping other people on that journey. Amazing. I'm going to relate something. And so if anybody's listening to this and going through a dark period, like relational, just remember Jennifer's story and just make a decision. You're not going to stay there. Just make a decision. And I've told this to a lot of people is I know for a fact, this is the first time I've ever said this on the podcast and it's, it's a blessing and a curse. (laughs) (laughs) And this is not endorsed by Jennifer Rayford in any way. (laughs) Oh God, (laughs) what's coming? (laughs) Um, And I've only told this to my male friends going through divorces. And I say, look, in about 12 to 18 months, you're going to be having the hottest monkey sex (laughs) with somebody that's going to blow your mind. And I'm going to pop into your head and you're going to remember this conversation. (laughs) And so... It has happened every single time that I've said that. I've gotten texts from friends. Hopefully not in the middle. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. So that is, for anybody listening, that is my, you know, fortune cookie blessing to you. And again, in no way affiliated with Courage to Rise. I will add on to that, though, because there is a need to, it's belief that things are going to be better yeah. even if you cannot possibly see now how that's how that is going to happen it's having the belief that it's it's going to get better at some point so if you want to say it's crazy monkey sex say it's crazy monkey sex <laughs> and, and please do send me an email <laughs> after the, the next day please hashtag crazy monkey sex <laughs> 
God, don't Google that. <laughs> this has been incredible. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank much. You. This is great. Where, and I'll post links to all this. Where can people, when they're ready, connect with you? Sure. So I have um, a website is Courage to Rise. My podcast is Courage to Rise. And then um, my main website is just jenniferrayford.com. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. I so appreciate it. Well done. Thank you. Awesome. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple, Transistor, or Spotify. And I know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest. And if you do, please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.